And now, Father, we come to your word and we ask you to feed us until we are no longer lacking in our knowledge of the truth. We understand that we will never be that full of your word until we see you face to face. And then even after that, we will spend eternity learning about the Lord, our God, who is infinite and eternal and beyond our human, even glorified capacity to fully comprehend. We will worship you forever for the greatness of your glory that is unfathomable. And so we praise you for this word that you've given us. And we ask you to speak now and give us ears to hear and heart, hearts that are willing to embrace all of your truth. Oh, Father, use it to feed us and to lead us and to protect us and to warn us. We pray that you would keep us from error and lead us into the truth for your glory and for our own great joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll be reading, picking up where we left off a number of weeks ago, Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 19. Our time is somewhat limited, so just follow along with me now as I read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with, uh, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you remember the day that you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ? How everything was so fresh and new and exciting. and You just couldn't seem to contain it. Everything had changed for you especially that first week or so after you realized your sins were forgiven and suddenly the guilt was gone, your conscience had been purified, your heart was beating with a living fellowship with God, and it was all new and it was unlike anything you had ever experienced before. And you were keenly aware of the fact that not everyone in town knew this and everyone you know needed it. And so what did you do? Well, you do the only thing that makes sense. You start telling everybody you know about the joy you have found through the forgiveness of sins in Christ alone. Beloved, how we need to rekindle that fire. In most of our hearts, how it needs to be rekindled again. How we need to plead with God to stoke the embers of our hearts and fan the flame of our burning passion, not only for His glory, but for the glory of God in the salvation of the lost. And indeed, this is exactly where we're headed as a church body in our three-year plan for ministry, because, say it with me, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. And by definition, this means that we must learn how to take the gospel to the lost. But how? What strategy? What approach? What pitfalls should we avoid? These are valid questions. And clearly the book of Hebrews was not written as a manual on how to do evangelism, right? We know that. But it might surprise you to learn that the book has a very definite evangelistic thrust to it throughout. Yes, it's a document full of deep and often difficult theology, 
We've learned that along the way, right? But think with me about the author's motive for writing. Why is he writing the book? We know what he wrote, but why did he write the book? And in order to understand that, you have to kind of know what he wrote. And we spent an awful lot of time looking at what he wrote. But do you remember why he wrote it? you remember what his motive was? Well, I'll tell you, he, he wasn't moved to write a seminary curriculum. This wasn't a document for the School of the Prophets. And nor was he interested in offering them a, a first edition volume on systematic theology. That wasn't the purpose of Hebrews. To the contrary, his heart had been seized by a gripping sense of both deep affection and unsettling fear for the people that, whom he loved. And yet he knew they were being tempted. He knew that they were being called away from the gospel. He knew that a number of people in that church, as in every church, as in this church, there are a number of people who were not born again. They were not believers. And some of them were really showing definite signs of apostasy, that they were getting ready to fall away from the gospel they said that they had embraced, but perhaps had not. He loved these people. He realized that while they had maintained their religious fervor as Jews, this was a, a Jewish congregation, nevertheless, they were in danger of being lost forever. They were religious lost. They were the religious lost. The deceiver was blinding them to the truth that their Messiah had come and that he had accomplished all that the Old Testament priesthood and all that the Old Testament sacrificial system could never have done. What they needed was a clear and powerful presentation of the gospel and an invitation to embrace it and a fearful warning about rejecting it. And that part will be in two weeks when I come back. We'll talk about the fearful warning about rejecting it. And so the inspired author did what many of us have done for people that we love. With all of this concern racing through his mind, if I don't say something, they may be lost forever. I see the direction they're going. It's, it's toward hell and not toward God in Christ. And so he did what many of us have done. He sat down. He picked up a pen. And he wrote a letter. And that letter is the book of Hebrews. This is an evangelistic letter. It's a letter calling people to embrace the gospel. And it is a letter warning them about rejecting the gospel. And it is a letter of warning about embracing false doctrine and the dangers that it could lead to. Now, if this evangelistic motif has not been obvious to you, as we have worked through this book so far, it will become abundantly so today. Because in this text that I just read for you, the author brings his readers to the hour of decision. This could have been the end of the book. I'm not saying it was. I'm not saying anyone thinks that. I'm saying potentially the author could have gotten to this text, put a period at the end, said, greet everybody who knows me, and the Lord bless you and keep you the end. This would have been an appropriate place for that to happen. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had more to say. And I like that because preachers always have more to say. More exhortation, more encouragement, more warning. There was more to come. And Hebrews 11, we are right now on the heels of Hebrews 11. I have always wanted to preach Hebrews 11. And so this morning he comes to this decision time. They must decide whether they will embrace Jesus Christ as God's only provision for salvation or whether they will turn their backs on the gospel and suffer the eternal consequences. As we consider what the author has written here, I'm praying for two things. And I've been praying for two things all this week as I've been looking at this. 
first that many of us will learn better how to share the gospel and how not to. And second, that some among us this morning or someone hearing this on the web or by CD somewhere, that someone this morning will be brought to their own hour of decision and by God's grace they will embrace the cross. They will turn their backs on everything else they've ever trusted for salvation everything else they ever thought would bring them into the presence of God, that they will turn their backs on it all for Christ alone. That's what I'm praying for. Now, I've entitled this message, Why Evangelism Often Fails, because I see two things in the inspired gospel invitation here that many modern evangelists leave out. It's a sad reality in our day that in an effort to get people to make a decision for Christ or to pray the prayer, evangelistic methods are used that strip the gospel of its power and actually turn it into a tool of the enemy to create false converts. And usually when this is the case, the problem can be traced back to one of two things. Either it was a failure... It was a failure to present the gospel in context, or it was a failure to present the gospel's commitment. It was either a failure to present the gospel's context, or a failure to present the gospel's commitment. And the author of Hebrews, however, was very careful to present both the context and the commitment that the gospel invites us to embrace. Now notice, first of all, how careful he has been to present the context of the gospel. Verses 19 through 21. Let me just read that section over again. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great Priest over the house of God, dot, 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 stop there. I want you to notice that he begins with, therefore, and twice says, since we have, verse 19, and since we have, verse 21, what's he doing? What's he doing here? He's referring back to what he's already said. He's referring back to the truth that has already been established. In fact, he's reflecting back on the entirety of what he has written so far, beginning with chapter 1. Now, this is instructive for us as we consider how to share the gospel with people we love. Because it's important that we are careful not to call people to a decision about the gospel until we are confident that they understand the context of the gospel. Now, I've known men who have so polished their approach to presenting Jesus to people that they could get almost anyone to pray the sinner's prayer. I've seen it. There was a time I got a phone call one day, and there was a person we were ministering to in an apartment complex and he just went berserk. He'd gotten into drugs and other things. And, and it was a really bad day that day. And so I got a call, and I didn't realize other people had been called. And, and uh, when I got over there, this, this other brother was there. And he was down on one knee, and he was preaching to this guy. And I thought, gee, what is this about? And he pressed this kid and pressed him and pressed him and pressed him until he got that, that young man to pray a prayer of salvation. And I came away thinking, oh my goodness, what did he just do? I mean, does he know anything about Jesus? Does he know anything about the cross? Does he know anything about God? Does he know anything about sin? Does he know anything about holiness? Does he know anything about judgment or the law or anything? You may have just created a false convert. You may just have given this kid false assurance, which indeed he had. And it was only 
a day later before this young man returned to the very thing that he had done the day before. And as far as I know, and I've heard from this young man many a time since then, he, he's just out there. He's, he's totally given up on Christ if he ever even made any attempt to be a disciple of the Lord's. No confidence that he ever did, but he prayed a prayer. Somebody got him to pray a prayer. Somebody told him, now, because you've prayed this prayer, you've confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you said, I believe that he is risen from the dead. Well, then you're saved. You're saved. You're born again. You said that. What about all the scriptures? Think of James. If a man says he has faith, but... If a man says he has faith, but... Can that faith save him? It's not whether or not you say you believe. Listen, the demons believe, James says, and they tremble. Why? They're lost. They know it. They're headed for hell. The lake of fire. This is a real problem, and it's been a problem in the church ever since, I think, revivalism took hold in America and in Europe. I always come away from these experiences wondering whether it be a revival or whether it be a personal one-on-one thing that I witness. I always come away wondering if the person who prayed the prayer really had any true understanding of the essential truths that give the gospel substance. Now listen, folks, the gospel is more than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's more than Jesus died on the cross for my sins. What does any of those words mean? It's so much more than God can give your life purpose. Or Christ came to fill your soul with peace. The gospel is this. Are you ready? If I can summarize it down into one sentence. The gospel is about how the almighty and eternal God of the universe reconciled the most difficult and costly dilemma of the universe, namely this. How can holy God punish sin, which he hates, without destroying the people he loves? That's what the gospel is about. How can God punish sin that he hates, and his law requires punishment, without destroying the people that he loves? The gospel answers that question. It solves that problem. And so the context of the, of the gospel starts with the existence and holiness of God set against the vile wickedness of sin in man. It exposes man's need and, and then very carefully defines God's provision by means of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. It answers objections. And when necessary, as here in the book of Hebrews, it strives to expose and correct false teaching. Frankly, it often takes a, a significant investment of time to bring a person to a true knowledge of the gospel. I remember when the Lord brought a certain brother to Calvary Bible Church. Rodney, can I use your name? (laughs) The Lord brought Rodney uh, here in 1994 or 95. He had his own 97 thought it was longer than that. Okay. He had his own business at the time. He kind of set his own schedule. So he was free to kind of come to the church and set my schedule. And he did. I was the associate at the time. And um, for a period of several weeks, he would come to the office almost every day, right? Almost every day. I mean, at least three times a week. And he would come and we'd sit at the table and we'd look at the Word of God. Rodney had a thousand questions. And for every question, the Word of God had an answer. And it took a long time, didn't it? There were a lot of things that needed to be resolved, a lot of false teaching that had to be addressed. There there was a lot of questions that needed to be answered, a lot of speculation that needed to be had to to bring the Word of God to bear upon. 
Who is Jesus? And how does he relate to this God that I've been introduced to? And what does any of that have to do with me? And where does sin fit into that? And where's the cross? And what about the resurrection? What is that? And the Holy Spirit? It took time. It took time. And I would dare say that when it comes to taking the gospel to adult people in this generation, this is the norm. It's necessary to preach the cross and the empty tomb in their context. And this is especially the case in our day when we can no longer assume that people have a basic Judeo-Christian background and understanding. I mean, we don't even have the same advantage that the apostles had ministering to the Jews because the Jews knew the scriptures, the Old Testament. They knew all of that stuff. They had been trained since their youth. Their understanding just needed to be tweaked a little bit. They needed to see that this pointed to Christ and that pointed to Christ and this points to Christ and that points to Christ and Christ has come and this is the evidence and this is the evidence and this is the evidence and this is what the Word of God said in the past and this is what Psalm says and this is what Isaiah said and this is what Malachi said. This is what Micah said. In the early 1900s, R.A. Torrey wrote, One man with whom slow but thorough work has been done and who at last has committed his life to Christ is better than a dozen who are rushed through the sinner's prayer and think they have accepted Christ when in reality they have not. It is often wise to plant truth in a man's heart and leave it to work. The seed on rocky ground springs up quickly, but it withers just as quickly. He's right. If the book of Hebrews had been written in our day, I think by one of the current evangelical celebrities of our time, I guarantee they wouldn't have taken up more than a single page. And most of the page probably would have been a cartoon. Or a quote from said religious celebrity. But the author of the book of Hebrews is in no hurry to rush his readers to a decision. He invests the time and mental energy necessary to establish the necessary context for the gospel. There are things that must be understood. Now, it doesn't have to be terribly complex. A child can understand the gospel... But depending on how far along in life the person has gone and how much baggage he has picked up along the way, it could be more or less complex. The issue is, do they understand the context? Do they understand what the gospel is really all about? Because frankly, our churches, I've said this before and I'll say it a thousand times again before the Lord takes me home, our churches in America, while we are still at peace as a church and a nation, And there is no persecution. But our church in America is full of unbelievers who have made a decision for Christ. They have prayed the sinner's prayer. Where do they get the sinner's prayer? It's not in the Bible. But they pray the sinner's prayer. They've walked an aisle. They've filled out the little sticker to put on the back of their Bible so that if they ever have any doubts, they look at the sticker. That's called faith in sticker. It's a sticky faith. (laughs) And it's crazy the things that we have added to the gospel so much that we don't even remember what the gospel is anymore. And I know that this is the case, not only because of what I've read, but because all of you who are members, I've heard your testimonies. And almost without fail, maybe 95% of the people who share their testimony, that that may be a little high. 85, 90% of the people who share their testimony on their way to becoming a member of Calvary Bible Church say something like, I was raised in a church in the community. I accepted Jesus, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle when I was seven. And 14 years later, I was born again. 23 years later, God tore the blinders off, and I realized I've been lost. 
and what I did that day many years ago was not necessarily evidence that God did anything in my heart. I made a decision. I walked an hour, an aisle for who knows what motive. No, I'm not saying that walking an aisle is wrong. I'm not saying come before to make a stand before your church body is wrong. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is what's the motive? And do you understand? Did you understand why you did that? Why God has called the Lord Jesus to come and give his life a ransom for many? Why he rose again and why you needed what he has provided? The author of the book of Hebrews is in no hurry to rush his readers to that decision. He invests the time and the mental energy to establish the necessary context. And I can prove this. Let me ask you a question. What is the very first word of the book of Hebrews? God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at it. If you have the NAS. Let me show you where he starts. He starts with the doctrine of God. God. Now, if you're going to start a, an evangelistic letter, where do you start? You don't have any peace in your life. It's not where the Bible starts. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, and we've gotten from God to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the sentence isn't even complete. He knew their context. He knew they already believed there was a God. He knew that he already, they already believed that the prophets had come and spoken for God. They knew a lot of theology. But their perceptions needed to be changed. This is where every presentation of the gospel starts, beloved. Not with man, but with God. And from there, the author invests no less than nine and a half chapters laying out the context for the gospel. And now in verses 19 through 21, the author boils down nine and a half chapters of gospel context to two statements. First, notice that now we can boldly enter the presence of God because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of his flesh was the equivalent of tearing down the veil that kept sinners out of the presence of God. That's his summary of everything, every essential thing that he has said so far. And second... Verse 21, in Christ Jesus, we not only have the perfect sacrifice to fulfill the requirement of the law, we also have a great priest who is worthy to offer it. Don't you see, he's saying, that everything you thought the law and the sacrificial system and the priesthood was giving you but did not has been provided for you in Christ. This is what we have established for nine and a half chapters. Or if you've been here from the beginning, 40 messages of context. This was the appropriate gospel context for these Jewish readers. These three verses compress all the essential truth needed to enable them to decide whether or not they would embrace Jesus or turn to the old obsolete sacrificial system that could never save. And let me just point out, you could look at this passage. You want a gospel invitation? How complex does it have to be? He does it. I don't know how many words are here. Three, three, three verses, a couple of sentences. He lays out the gospel in a couple of sentences. But what's the assumption? What's the assumption? There was tons of, of argument and, and 
exposition. How many times did he quote from Old Testament scriptures and bring them to bear on their conscience? So that they would see this is not only sensible and logical, this is biblical. And he boils the presentation or the invitation down into three verses. But be careful. If that's all you do, if that's all you do when you're bringing someone to Christ, there's danger. You may be making some assumptions. In fact, it's likely that you are making assumptions about their knowledge of God and themselves and Christ and sin and all of these other things that may not be the case. You get talking on the airplane with a couple seated next to you. You start asking them about where they are spiritually. They're going to talk about Jesus. They're going to talk about God. They're going to talk about resurrection. They're going to talk about righteousness. And you're going to think, wow, this is brother and sister in Christ. It's happened to Dr. Stuart Scott recently. I heard him talk about this on an airplane. He said he pressed a little more and found out they were Jehovah's Witnesses. They had a completely different context. They had adopted some false teaching. Or maybe they're Mormon. Or maybe they're Roman Catholic. And they're so close, but they're trusting in Christ plus. But the author of Hebrews is very careful to give the context of the gospel. Now, this is not enough, however. It's never enough simply to explain the context. There must also be a call to commitment. There must also be a call to, at, at some point, you, we need to get to the place where we say, it's decision time. You need to make a decision. You can't just keep coming to church, hearing the truth, hearing the truth, hearing the truth. At some point, you need to say, yes, to Christ. At some point, from your heart of hearts, There needs to be a, oh, God, save me. Oh, God, I trust in Christ alone. Oh, God, forgive me for my sin. Oh, God, forgive me for putting my hope in anything other than Christ. I see now that he is my glorious Savior. I trust him. Save me. The author knew what that commitment looked like, verses 22 through 25. Notice, therefore, since, since. In other words, since all of these truths that I've laid out for you are so and are convincing from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit has testified and you can see in history that these things are so, therefore, verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with an, uh, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Once again, I believe that just as many evangelists or evangelistic efforts fail to establish the gospel's context, so it often fails to explain the gospel's commitment. Let us draw near. In verse 22, we see the first of of this three-part invitation. The author says, let us draw near. In other words, now that the, the ultimate dilemma has been resolved so that sinful man can indeed enter the holy place with confidence, what are we waiting for? Let us draw near. The whole history of Israel demonstrates that no one could come into the presence of God because he is infinitely holy and we are sinful. And the only one who could enter was the high priest once a year and he did it in terror. And he got out of there as fast as he could. And even the priests would enter the holy place, the secondary room, the first room they would enter where the lampstand and table of showbread and the altar of incense were. And they would walk in and they could come up to the curtain, but they couldn't go beyond. There was a veil. There was a curtain that separated the priests even 
from the presence of God. And the very tabernacle itself stood in the way of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, from entering into the presence of God. No one could draw near. But chapter after chapter, precept after precept, line upon line, the author is demonstrated. Now that Christ has entered through the veil, it has been torn away. The perfect priest has made the perfect sacrifice when he sacrificed himself and took the blood into the heavenly tabernacle where the throne of God is in truth, not just an Ark of the Covenant, a symbol, but the actual throne of God and presented his own precious blood. And now he sat down at the right hand of God and we are now invited to come and to fellowship with him. And so the author is saying, therefore, let us draw near. What are we waiting for? Let's go. We can enter with confidence. Why? Look at the text. With assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Why? Look at verse 20. A new and living way which he inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh. And he is now our high priest. Come. And by the way, isn't that the way the Bible ends? Revelation. The very last paragraph of the Bible. Verse 17 of chapter 22, Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say what? Come. And let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and the one who wishes to take the water of life, that's salvation, without cost, come. It's the ultimate invitation. Come into the presence of God. Not come into the promise of a better marriage, not come into the promise of more wealth and earthly happiness, but come into the presence of God without fear. Come. Don't stay outside any longer. You are no longer aliens and strangers. If you come by faith in the Son of God, then you are adopted as His children. In the, author, the author's mind, the difference between the children of God and those who are lost forever is that the children of God exercise their right not only to know about Him, but to fellowship with Him. To draw near is synonymous with saving faith. That's why in chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. It's a synonym for saving faith. Come, let us draw near. You now have access to God. And so this is the invitation. Come to God with a sincere heart, notice. That is, come without any hypocrisy. Come with an open and honest view of your own sin and your own need, and with full confidence that because of Christ's high priestly ministry, your guilt has been removed. Your conscience has been sprinkled clean. Your bodies have been washed with pure water. These are all terms that a Jewish person would have known because this was constantly happening in the sacrificial system. There was blood and water and washings and presentings and offerings. And there is both an invitation and an expectation here. The invitation is to draw near to the holy God. The expectation is that as we draw near, God's holiness will begin manifesting itself in our lives. First in our hearts where no one can see, and then in our lives where all men can see. The call of the gospel is not an invitation to have your sins forgiven, and then feel free to continue in sin. Do whatever you please. 
No. It is an invitation into a relationship with God where the forgiveness of sins produces increasing holiness in our lives. If you don't want to be holy, then you're not ready to draw near. If you don't want God to change you, you're not ready to draw near. You are not coming on His terms. Whatever has to happen in your heart, that miracle of a new heart, wherein this heart of stone, the dead cold heart, is extracted, Ezekiel says, and the heart of flesh is put in its place, that has not happened yet. Only God can do that. And the call of the gospel is not an invitation to have your sins forgiven and walk away and sin all you want. It's an invitation to come to the holy God and start becoming holy like God. So gospel commitment involves drawing near in faith, in faith. But that's not the end. Verse 23, it is also a calling to persevere in hope. He says, let us draw near, but then in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the term hold fast carries the idea of perseverance, and those who are true children of God will persevere. Now, some of you struggle with this. I understand that. And let me, before I... I, I say the next thing here. Let me, let me assure you, I'm not talking about perfection. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that when a person becomes, becomes a child of God by faith, they become perfect. That's not the case. Even the Apostle Paul said, it's not as though I've attained, but I press on toward the mark. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about God making you more holy. It's about he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's going to take time. Nevertheless, those who are truly born again, people ask me uh, fairly regularly, do you believe once saved, always saved? And I say, no, I believe if saved, always saved. Because typically what people mean by that is, once you pray a prayer, you're always saved, right? No. Once you're born again, you're always alive in Christ. You will always be alive. Does that mean you won't struggle? No. Does that mean you won't sin? No. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, right? One of the many reasons. we got to battle sin, yes. But we will finish faith intact on that final day. 1 Corinthians 5. I've got a number of scriptures here. If you're wanting them, now's your chance to write them down. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Unless you had a false belief, a false conversion. Colossians 1, 22 and 23. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. What about the book of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6? Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and our boast firm until when? The end. Firm until the end. And if there was ever a text on this to demonstrate God's perspective on saving, I mean, this, this only makes sense, though, right? Once you're born, you live until you die. I mean, is that, was that earth-shattering? Once you're born, you live until you die. 
Except for the believer, once you're born of the Spirit, you never die. If you're truly born of the Spirit, you never die. God keeps you. So that the Lord Jesus in the book of John can say, Father, of all that you have given me, I have lost how many? None. I will lose none. But we'll present each one of them on the last day. Once the Lord Jesus catches a fish, he keeps it. He never throws them back. And by the way, some of you will say, well, I can't come to Christ. I need to clean up my life. Jesus catches his fish first, and then he cleans them. I've always wanted to say that, but... <laughs> Isn't that right? Luke eighteen fifteen. You know this, the parable of the soils and the seed. This is the last one. There are four, right? Three of them were false. One of them made no pretense of coming to Christ, receiving the gospel. The other two sure looked like they were the real thing. But of those final three, only one was true. And listen to how the Lord Jesus describes it. Luke 18, I'm sorry, it's Luke 8, 15. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. You see the word sincere here? Same, same thing that the author of Hebrews is using. These are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart and do what? Hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. I mean, you could jump all over the Scripture and see this, but you see in, in Revelation 3 and 4, again, the final book, He who overcomes, I will give. He who overcomes, I will write his name. He who overcomes will... Who's he talking about? The church. Everyone who has been born again will persevere. He's struggling. Your world's been rocked by temptation to sin, perhaps. It happens. Take heart. The Lord Jesus will never let you go. Keep fighting. Keep walking. Never, ever, ever give up. Yes, it's a battle. But the Lord Jesus has promised that he holds you in his hand and his Father who is Lord of all, holds him in his hand. We are doubly sealed. And so you see, the gospel invitation is not an invitation to try Jesus. It's an invitation to throw all that you are upon all that he is for the rest of your life. You can't flit in and out of a, a union with the Lord Jesus. Trusting him is a lifelong and eternal commitment. And it's one that he accomplishes in us. But the wonderful thing is, beloved, the true believer has no problem with this. What? You mean Christ bears all of my sin and I get all of his inheritance? What's the problem? Where do I sign? Why would I ever want to get out of that kind of arrangement? Why would I ever waver from such hope? God has proved himself faithful. Why would I not continue trusting him? The question is never why would I stop trusting him. The question is, why would he ever love me? Why would he hang on to me? Why has he promised to never let me go? That's the astounding thing. Listen, a lifelong commitment to Christ is the joy of every true believer's heart. Nothing gives us more pleasure than the thought of being his servant for eternity. David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper 
in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents, the rich, wealthy tabernacles of the wicked. Just make me a doorkeeper. It's that whole Old Testament image of the slave is redeemed. He's purchased. His freedom has been bought. He said, you're free to go. And the slave says, but I love my master. I don't want to go. And according to the law, they would say, all right, then let's make this final. And they would take him over to a doorpost and they would take a, a it's an awl is what they call it. It's a poker. And they would pierce his ear against the post of the door. And I assume they put some kind of a ring there to indicate this was a slave who has been set free, but he wishes and has devoted himself to serving his master willingly for the rest of his life. Why would I turn away from being like a son to the king? Please don't set me free. Keep me as your slave. That's the mentality of all who know the Lord Jesus. It's like one day we were walking through a field and we found the treasure and we went out and we sold everything we had and bought the field so we could have the treasure. And so gospel commitment involves drawing near in faith and persevering in hope. Finally, verses 24 and 25. This fits so beautifully with what we talked about last week. It involves devoting ourselves to love. 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate. I love that word in the Greek. It literally means irritate. I'm good at that. (laughs) Ask my kids. (laughs) Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The amazing thing is, here's his gospel invitation, and his invitation includes the local church. This is where the local church fits in, beloved. If you think God doesn't care whether you are a vital part of a local congregation, then you've got to wrestle with why the author of Hebrews included in his invitation a call to be devoted to the local church when you embrace the gospel. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Consider here means to engage our minds in strategizing about how to help the other members of the body be more faithful and effective at loving and serving one another for the glory of Christ and their own joy. And this is in contrast to showing up on Sunday and checking it off as your religious duty for the week and never giving a second thought to the needs of God's people until the following Sunday. And perhaps you've Never considered this before, but when God saved you out of the kingdom of darkness, he saved you into the body of Christ. He saved you out of sin and into the church. Saved you out of the world and into the church. The fact is, the body of Christ cannot function as God intended unless every member is doing its part. And that gives a little clarity to the term in verse 25, not forsaking. You know what that literally means in the Greek? It literally means not leaving in the lurch. In other words, not fulfilling your particular responsibility in the local body of Christ. You're not leaving the rest of the body in the lurch. Where's hand today? Well, I don't know. Uh, He was up late partying last night. He said he might not make it. Well, you're leaving us in the lurch. We need you, Hand. Where's mouth? I'm here every week, right? (laughs) Where's eye? Where's feet? Where's leg? You remember the whole thing Paul talks about with the body? The eye can never say to the hand, I have no need of you. Look, if the hand's not here, we're left in the lurch. We've got to use one hand instead of two. You ever done that? And if it's a left hand... Those of you who are righties, we're in serious trouble. Try typing a document with your left hand. Where's hand? He's left us in the lurch. How? By forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Not fulfilling our responsibility. 
Rather, we are to encourage one another all the more. We're to do our part. We're to understand that God has put us in the church, that he has worked for us to do, that there are people to encourage, there are people to train, there are people to serve, there are people to get under, there are people who need to be taught, there are people who need to be rebuked, there are people who need something from you that only you can give. And if you're not there, you leave that person in the lurch. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I'm calling you to draw near to God. Drawing near to God means more than me and Jesus. It means a commitment to following Him and obeying Him. You know, Luke 8, we looked at. Luke 6, you know what Jesus says in Luke 6? Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things I say? And the Word of God clearly says, you are part of the body of Christ, and that means something other than membership in a club. There's work. There's sacrifice. There's need. Don't hold yourself aloof. You are hurting the body of Christ when you do. I know time is gone, so let me bring this down to a conclusion. Two points of application. Number one, I suspect there are some of you today who realize you need to come up with a plan for reaching out to a lost friend or family member with the gospel. Not just a five-minute confrontation. Not just four spiritual laws and a prayer. And perhaps an ongoing, even systematic approach to helping them consider the claims of Christ. There are a number of ways to do that. You can meet with them and say, hey, how about, if you're interested in this, there's so much that I can share with you from Scripture. In fact, we can, we can get a book together and begin working through it. And can I suggest a couple? R.C. Sproul, The Truth of the Cross, excellent, excellent. C.J. Mahaney, uh, Christ Our Mediator, very, very short. And sit down with a person and say, would you meet with me? There's a lot more here. I know there's hypocrisy in the church. I know the church is full of hypocrites. Don't let that keep you from Christ. There's so much that you don't know because all you're seeing is the negative that's there. And there is. Meet with me. And maybe use a book like that. Maybe just go through Scripture if you're able. Stuart Scott just came up with a a PowerPoint gospel presentation that's phenomenal. We're going to be initiating it in all of our counseling. John MacArthur has for children a faith to grow on. Some of you were introduced to that on Friday night in the family worship meeting. It systematically starts with the doctrine of God, moves into the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, moves then into the spiritual disciplines, church, prayer, etc., etc., sharing your faith. Systematically, it builds a context for the gospel before you come and say, therefore, let us draw near. Or perhaps you just need to sit down, as the author of Hebrews did, and write a letter, a very thoughtful, gracious, loving, biblical letter. And the point is, we need to be careful about how we share the gospel. But as we are being careful, let us not be so fearful of doing it that we never share it. It's not that complicated. Start with your testimony. Add what truth from the Word of God that you can. If a question comes up that you don't understand, ask. Call Brent. He's got the answers. And so that's group number one. Group number two, there may be some in the body this morning or who are listening to this message elsewhere. And you've been listening to the context of the gospel expounded Sunday after Sunday for almost today would be the 40th message. And you've heard the truth, but you've not responded to the truth. And let me just tell you, hearing the truth is not enough. You've seen the glory of Christ. You have not responded to His glory. 
You've not embraced his glory. It's time for you to choose. Do you understand what a miracle it is that God is inviting you to draw near? Do you understand what a a gift it is that God is calling you to draw near to him in Christ? I plead with you not to put it off for another day, another hour. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. You know the truth. It's time for you to confidently enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I plead with you. Plead with you. You've been presented the context of the gospel. And now it's time for you to make a commitment that is consistent with the gospel. And your commitment is really, God, I commit to seeing myself as you have revealed me a wretched sinner in desperate need of a glorious Savior. And God, I now believe Jesus is that Savior. Save me. I repent. Beloved, the gospel must be presented both in its context and its commitment. Otherwise, sinners may embrace something God never offered. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for these precious truths. This, really, the most precious of all truths we find in your word, that God in Christ paid our debt, that we can live in righteousness and holiness before you forever. Oh, Father, burn it into our hearts so that our hearts are aflame with desire to see men and women and children come to the knowledge of the truth. May we be found faithful to do so. And, oh, Father, I pray for those who are here or listening who don't know Christ and have never bowed the knee before him, that today would be that glorious and joyful day when they are born again. These things, Father, we pray by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen.